a different tomorrow with Norwegian Cruise Line. Book today and get 50% off your cruise to Alaska, Europe, and beyond. Plus, everyone can enjoy their vacation with free unlimited open bar, free specialty dining, and more. Visit ncl.com, call your travel advisor, or 1-888-NCL-CRUISE. Offer ends soon. Norwegian Cruise Line, Ships Registry, The Bahamas and USA. Restrictions apply. The rest of my life gonna start today. The Bowery Boys, episode 227, The Hindenburg over New York. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And Tom, we're presenting a story today that has fascinated me since I was a kid. And I've been waiting for the opportunity for us to tell the story of the disaster of the Hindenburg. Tragedy struck 80 years ago on May 6, 1937, when the German Zeppelin, the Hindenburg, crashed in New Jersey after floating over the Atlantic and over New York City. Now, some may know this tragedy from that terrible 1970s film or maybe from a retelling on the History Channel. But what you may not know is New York City's role in this story. For not only did the Hindenburg fly over the city of New York City the same afternoon that it crashed, but Zeppelin mania had taken over New York City for many years. Zeppelin mania. Yes. So on today's show, we're going to be talking about how New York got itself whipped up into Zeppelin mania, what that even meant, how and how the general public saw Zeppelins, these big flying airships, as the future of air travel. Now, this may sound like a far-flung concept, something we can't imagine, these gigantic gas bags, these balloons floating in the sky for commercial travel. But there is one vestige of this age of the airship which still commands our attention today. Every night when people look up at the wondrous skyline of New York City, every single night they see a major symbol of the Zeppelin era. What, you're not going to tell us what it is? You're just going to hang it there dangling? (laughs) Dangling like a mooring mast, perhaps? Mm, The intrigue. Well, we'll get to that story of how New York prepared for the Zeppelin and also, of course, tell the dramatic event that was witnessed by millions in radio broadcasts and newsreels around the world, really. This was the event that brought the world of traveling by airship to an abrupt and tragic end. So join us as we look up at the fleeting and floating history of the Hindenburg over New York. All right, Greg. Well, before we just dive into the event of May 6, 1937, let's pull back a little here and and talk about what these giant airships were in the first place. You promised to tell us about (laughs) Zeppelin mania. (laughs) Well, we have to define what a Zeppelin is. It is a form of transportation that seems a little bit out of a dream today, a very rare vision of the skies. More appropriately, they were called airships. Right. These gigantic gas bags filled with certain kinds of gas. There were two kinds, mm-hmm. a hydrogen and helium, that would raise them into the sky as a sort of evolved version of the hot air balloon. 
Right, gas bags, but the bags were contained in something, some sort of skeleton or something, right? Well, not, to give them structure. Yeah, I mean, blimps, for instance, are non-rigid airships, which means that there's not that much of a framework, okay. and actually they can deflate like a sad Macy's Thanksgiving Day balloon, <laughs> a blimp. But a dirigible is often a more rigid structure with some kind of a metal frame within it and a passenger gondola underneath it. Okay, so you have some sort of a skeleton which you then fill with these gas bags, multiple bags in the same ship. Mm -hmm. Right. A Zeppelin Mm -hmm. is a certain kind of dirigible, although today it's more of a standard phrase. It's sort of of synonymous. Was Zeppelin the name of a company? Was it somebody? What was it? It sounds to me like some sort of reptile. (laughs) Well, a Zeppelin is a specific design of dirigible and was indeed designed by the German Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin. A count? He was from a distinguished class, royal blood, a wealthy inventor. Um, His company soon designed a series of these steerable airships, which allowed them to grow larger and larger in size. They would soon get so large that the only restriction in size would be the hangars in which they would be stored in. Wow, and and when was this? When did Count Zeppelin invent his first flying airship? In 1900. Okay. So then by the 1910s, within Germany, they were already being used for regular passenger transportation. So these things could be enormous. And what what Mm -hmm. I find really fascinating is that we're going to be referring to them, and they were referred to as airships, right? Because people didn't know what else to call them. The only other reference they had were like giant passenger ships, ocean liners. These things were enormous, like three city blocks long. Now, they wouldn't hold as many people as a grand ocean liner, no. but they would be the size of, and sometimes even larger, than a boat like the Lusitania. And that would impact a number of things, like where they would be built, or where they would be stored, or where they could land. And in the case of the Zeppelin company, then, they're taking off and landing in Germany in 1910. Um, Now, the teens in Germany was kind of a dicey time. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, we're talking the start of World War I. These were actually not used in battle because they were too slow and not really effective against, of course, the more superior and faster flying aces. Right, because airplanes are existing at the same time, just not passenger jets. No, they're just very small, very rudimentary, and very dangerous. But Zeppelins would be used in bombing raids, a particularly deadly series of bombing raids in England. And there were even fears that New York City would even be attacked by German Zeppelins. As a result, at the end of World War I... In the Treaty of Versailles, the Germans were forced to dismantle all work on all of their Zeppelins and destroy existing airships. Okay, well, that's Germany, but other countries were getting into the airship game, right? In the U.S., we were developing them. Yes, America wanted to get into the game and did indeed begin manufacturing them, but the quality was greatly inferior, as you can imagine. Don't you dismate in America. (laughs) We just didn't have the experience. Fortunately, we had H-1B visas. (laughs) Fortunately, the Zeppelin Company, which still existed, had a new manager by the name of Dr. Hugo Eckner. And as part of the war reparations after World War I, he said, on behalf of the Zeppelin Company, 
We will make you, America, a Zeppelin at our own expense, and we will deliver it to your door. So the Zeppelin company made, and then Dr. Eckner personally delivered a brand new Zeppelin to America. It was later called the USS Los Angeles. The Los Angeles. When did when did the Los Angeles arrive on American shores? Well, it arrived on October 12th, 1924, arriving at a place called Lakehurst, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about in a second. That's but it's right. about, That's in New Jersey. Yes, but that's about 75 miles south of downtown Manhattan. Just in from the Jersey Shore. Yeah. South of Asbury Park. So this, this gift if you will, mm-hmm. this uh, USS Los Angeles, ignited a great new consideration of the Zeppelin as a means of commercial travel because this was also a beautiful, huge ship that had almost never been seen over the skies of the United States. And, and stupid question here, but Eckner flew it over. They yes, didn't assemble his, it over here. No, he, no. He flew it over from Germany. Right. And so they would be allowed to make more Zeppelins leading to an even greater airship that would capture everyone's imagination, the Graf Zeppelin. This initiated the first transatlantic passenger travel, with flight service that began upon its arrival on October of 1928, from Friedrichshafen, Germany, where Mm -hmm. it was manufactured, to Lakehurst, flying over New York City on its initial run, and landing at Lakehurst in less than five days. So it made it from southern Germany. Friedrichshafen Mm -hmm. is is on Lake Constance and borders on the other side, Switzerland and Austria, so way down there. Flies over in five days which was far faster um, than any transatlantic ocean liner. So this was seen really as a huge step forward technologically. Well, I think the importance of this gets lost today because airplane design here in 1928 was still in its infancy, but we're in an era where feats of flying prowess are making all the headlines in the newspaper. So there was a lot of interest in air travel. Right. They were heroes, by the way. Pilots, Lindbergh, Amelia Earhart. These were like big, big U.S. heroes. So... But at the same time, passengers were not ready to hop aboard one of those flights. But we're also talking New York City in 1928 at the height of its wealth and promise with dozens of skyscrapers in the city changing changing it into the city of the future. So with this brand new Zeppelin landing and Mm -hmm. kind of changing people's perspective of air travel, Dr. Eckener and his crew became heroes in the United States. They got a ticker tape parade through the streets of Lower Manhattan the day after they landed in Lakehurst. They could have thrown ticker tape out of the Uh, Graf Zeppelin as it was passing over. That would have sped things up. Well, they were escorted by the mayor after after their ticker tape parade uh, to dinner in the Ritz Towers. And then they were honored guests at a hot new Broadway musical playing at the Ziegfeld called Showboat. Whoa. (laughs) How appropriate. I mean, talk about a showboat. You know, this is like the showiest boat ever. And it's in... The air. And that's the thing. Again, I mean, I I keep falling back on this thought of people looking up, right, from the city streets and seeing this thing and only being able to refer to it as an airship because it looked like a ship had just lifted up into the air and was flying over them. Well, it's about to even be a more showier boat because the following year, the Graf Zeppelin would circumnavigate the globe 
again landing in Lakehurst on August 29th, 1929, after a voyage of a little less than 22 days, Dr. Eckner and his crew would get another ticker tape parade. <laughs> so this is really like all of a sudden people are so excited for these for these Zeppelins. Part of the enthusiasm was kind of constructed a little bit here by the newspaper publisher William Randolph Hearst, who actually sponsored this trip around the globe. As um, he was wont to do. <laughs> as he did with these types of things. All of this inspired scientific renderings, futuristic cities that had Zeppelins in the background. Like, we were all going to be flying Zeppelins. Right. But would we be landing off in distant airports or there was something more convenient? Well, it's interesting that you set me up that way, Tom, because on the very same day that the Graf Zeppelin lands in Lakehurst from this circumnavigation of the globe, August 29th, 1929, former governor Al Smith announces at a press conference that he would be chairing a new construction company to make the second tallest building in New York. That building would be, when it was done in 1931, the Empire State Building. The second tallest. Hold on. I mean, surely the Empire State Building was the tallest building when it was completed. Well, it was when it was completed in 1931, but they had added something very unique to this. Now, the Empire State Building would embody the age of Art Deco, the age of the skyscraper. If you were trying to get people excited about this project and you wanted it to seem like a modern structure of the modern city, and then at the very same time you announce it, you have this modern marker of the future, the Zeppelin, landing in nearby New Jersey, wouldn't you want to somehow tie the Zeppelin to your new building? Tie it, like, literally or figuratively? Yeah, not just symbolically tie it, but to literally tie it to your building. So they added to the Empire State Building, a spire that was designed to function as a mooring mast for the Graf Zeppelin and others in the fleets of Zeppelins that were sure to arrive in New York City. Hold on. So you mean <laughs> that that mast, that, the spire at the top of the Empire State Building was intended to be a mooring mast for Zeppelins? Yeah. It didn't necessarily have to land all the way to the ground. It could just lower itself. And so if you had a landing post at some height, you could just tie it like a boat. It just had to latch on. Yeah. So there were plans, serious plans, for these Zeppelins to just latch on to the top of the Empire States? Well, this was their reasoning, okay? okay? Now, because of this mooring mast, when the building opened in May of 1931, the Empire State Building became the tallest building in the world. And, of course, the tallest building in New York for many decades. Anybody today who looks out at the New York skyline, the first thing they will see is the great mooring mast of these Zeppelins that were supposed to land there. But surely that was a vision of the future that never came to pass. Right. I mean, it just wasn't very practical to disembark at the very top of this building that had all of these great winds that were created oh, around Oh, yeah, and there. I guess disembarking could be some, <laughs> yes. something of a nervous-making experience. There's even some question about, like, if they were really even serious about this, if this was just a stunt to get the building to become the tallest. Mm. The Germans didn't even request it. The owners of the Zeppelins weren't particularly interested in this. Did the U.S. Navy get it to work? 
The greatest success wasn't delivering human beings. It was delivering newspapers. A blimp from downtown Manhattan like floated over to the top of the Empire State mm. Building and dropped some papers. That's about yeah. it. That cargo is easier to drop off than a bunch of passengers. <laughs> yes. So Lakehurst would remain the spot for airship travel here into the 1930s. Right, but of course, today's show is not about the Graf Zeppelin. It's about an even larger airship, the Luftschiff Zeppelin Number 129, otherwise referred to today as the Hindenburg, a ship that was massive. It was larger. It was 803 feet long and 135 feet in diameter. It was, it was about the size of the Titanic, just to give you... Some rough visualization, okay? And Hindenburg was also a prominent man in German society. That's right. Paul von Hindenburg had been the president of Germany from 1925 until 1934. Now, they worked on the construction of this airship from 1931 until 1936. So it was five years in the works, and it wasn't really named until afterwards. It was referred to as the 129 in the meantime. Um, It was faster than its predecessor. It could go 85 miles an hour, which really did cut the speed of cruising across the ocean in half. And these improvements were because it was also made of a lighter metal. It was made of an aluminum alloy that could hold 16 cotton bags of gas. Well, that's... That's a lot of gas, but you said aluminum. Yes, well, because it it had to be as light as possible. I mean, you couldn't exactly have a Led Zeppelin. (laughs) So 16 gas bags in this aluminum framework. Right, and then the entire thing was enclosed with a cotton skin um, that sort of held it together and would protect the gas bags from ultraviolet radiation from the sun, keep it kind of cool. And the entire ship then was powered by four enormous diesel Engines. I have to say, it does seem sort of delicate. I mean, it's so huge, but a very kind of simple process inside. Well, perhaps some aeronautic engineers would take issue with your <laughs> with with your term simple. Um, but yes, the in this case, bags would be filled with hydrogen to lift the ship off the ground, and then the you know the the motors would kick in to power it forward and and you try to get up as high as possible you know into the jet stream up to where there are really nice winds so that you had the winds working with you but we're filling these gas bags with hydrogen which is certainly not a a safe substance to be handling is it well helium uh, would have been far safer because helium doesn't burn and obviously hydrogen is highly combustible and the engineers behind it Hugo Eckner um, and others designed the Hindenburg to work with helium because of this, because it was so much safer, especially after the terrible crash of the British airship R101, which took place in 1930, which was a hydrogen ship. I mean, this was a ship that came down for an emergency landing, should have been a rather routine landing, but because it was filled with hydrogen and it leaked out and it burst into flames and it killed 48 people on board. So unfortunately, there were tragic precedents of hydrogen being used uh, to fatal consequences. So then why didn't they just switch over to helium? Well, because helium's a rare gas, and it certainly was at the time. It was far more expensive to acquire than hydrogen, but more importantly, the U.S. had the largest reserves of helium. And they had restricted the export of helium under the Helium Control Act of 1927. 
this was partially for military purposes. They were afraid that helium could come into the hands of our enemies who might use it for warfare. And of course, this was just a couple decades after World War One, and things were starting to heat up in Europe again. So, so the U.S. greatly restricted the export of helium, especially for these, you know, large quasi-military purposes. Mm-hmm. And although it was more dangerous, it was also cheaper, and it had more power to lift, which allowed the Hindenburg to be designed with larger passenger areas. This really is beginning to sound like the Titanic of the air here, because now it's getting larger. It's the largest one in the world, yes. right? And would feature luxury, high-class accommodations. Right. And these decks, these two levels or decks, were designed by Fritz August Brehaus, who was a German designer who designed things like luxury ocean liners and railway cars. So he knew kind of how to work with these spaces. Now, you mentioned before the gondola that Mm -hmm. would be underneath the airship. Um, The passenger decks were actually not in that gondola. I think that there's a popular misconception when you see the Hindenburg and you see this little gondola up front. That was the control center, and that's where the pilot and the crew could gather and have a good view of what was happening down below. The passenger decks were built into the underbelly, if you will, of the ship itself. So I'm sure you're going to be putting some fabulous images online (laughs) so people can see this on the blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com. But try to visualize that there were two levels, a lower deck for the crew with kind of a, a cafeteria and washrooms and cabins for the crew. And the upper level, which was above it there, which included small sleeping quarters for the public with bunks, you know, two or four people to a room, plus a luxurious dining room and lounges, even a lounge with a grand piano that had been made of aluminum to keep it as light as possible and a writing lounge and and other public spaces. And those were lined with small slanted windows all the way around them so that you could head over and look down and observe uh, to see if you could see beneath you clouds or the ocean or land. This was really seen as a serious upgrade to travel from the Graf Zeppelin. I even located a copy of like the crew manual from mm-hmm. from the Hindenburg and there were like li- literally just several pages just devoted to what the crew could wear what their formal wear would oh, be yeah. in the evenings when they were serving dinner and when they were having champagne afterwards like what the crew would be wearing to make the whole experience seem as luxurious and as lofty of an affair as possible. Well, and the the chefs were coming from the finest restaurants, you know, in Europe. This was really top of the line. Those servers were really the first air stewards to ever fly. And this being the 1930s, of course, there was also, rather perhaps surprisingly, a smoking lounge aboard (laughs) the Hindenburg, which seems counterintuitive. You might want to keep, I don't know, flames away from the giant <laughs> hydrogen filled gas sacks above well, no. you. No, I mean you want to have a cigar and you know right. after after a, a nice dinner here on the Hindenburg. Why not? Well, if you wanted to do that, you were headed down to the lower level through the revolving airlock door and into the smokers lounge and there you could buy cigarettes, cigars, pipes from the bartender and have a drink, have a smoke and then take the airlock back out to join your fellow passengers. On your way out, the bartender on the other side would inspect you and make sure that you hadn't accidentally brought in a flame or, say, a lit cigarette. 
So when did the Hindenburg first see the sky? When did it first fly? Well, its first flight was on March 1st, 1936, uh, with Dr. Hugo Eckner and officials from the German Air Force and air captains, you know, from the company. Um, It had a crew of 47 and 30 passengers. And it would be a few weeks later, on March 23rd, 1936, when it would take its first real flight with real passengers, in this case reporters, and it went from Friedrichshafen in the south to Lowenthal. So these were still flights within Germany. So the Air Force was involved. This is a German military operation? Yeah, it's a little bit confusing because the Hindenburg was built by the Zeppelin company, Luftschiffbau Zeppelin, right? Which you mentioned, which formed in 1908. And that company built Zeppelins for both commercial and military use. But the Hindenburg was actually operated by another company, a company that was was jointly owned by the Zeppelin company and also by the German Air Ministry and by Germany's national airline called Lufthansa. So Germany, 1936, yeah. were, they, were they using this, the Hindenburg, for propaganda? They were indeed. They would paint the Olympic rings on the side of it as they flew it over the Olympic Stadium in 1936 for the opening ceremony in Berlin. And later they would paint swastikas on the back fins of the Hindenburg. So yes, the the Hindenburg was made part of the German Air Ministry, which was within the Reich Ministry for Public Enlightenment and Propaganda. And in fact, those first flights that we're talking about in March of 1936 occurred just a few weeks after German troops had entered and reoccupied the demilitarized Rhineland, uh, which was on the French, Netherlands, Belgian border. And Adolf Hitler had called for a referendum on the reoccupation, Germany's reoccupation of this territory. The referendum, the vote, was scheduled for March 29th. And so the Hindenburg, along with its sister Zeppelin, the Graf Zeppelin, flew 4,000 miles around the country, right, dropping propaganda leaflets with little parachutes, throwing those overboard down onto the curiosity seekers below while broadcasting pro-occupation messages to those on the ground. And so how did that vote go? Amazingly, the yes vote got almost... 99% of the votes. I see what's happening. So the Hindenburg certainly did play a part in Hitler's rise to power. So the Zeppelins here were both a symbol of the future as the Mm -hmm. possibility of international travel was becoming more realistic, but it was also a symbol of this rising, increasingly dangerous power here in Germany. Now, back on the Hindenburg itself, yeah. what about normal passenger service for commercial flights? Right. The first commercial flight in 1936 was on March 31st when it flew to Rio de Janeiro. So in total, that first year, the Hindenburg made 17 round-trip transatlantic trips. In that first year, nearly 2,800 passengers flew the Hindenburg And it carried more than 160 tons of mail. So this isn't just about an improvement in passenger service. This was also a way to speed up the transatlantic carrying of mail. Well, and mail service even helped fund some of these flights and uh, and made them possible. Although we should also note that the service schedule was somewhat irregular. It wasn't like it was constantly flying back and forth. You know, we have 17 trips, Mm -hmm. round trips in total. 
So I think that most of those early postal customers were actually doing it because they were stamp enthusiasts and they wanted the they wanted that stamp that said the Hindenburg oh, on yeah. their on their envelope. Collectors items. And remember that these tickets were expensive. This was a luxury liner of the sky, right? The tickets cost four hundred dollars each or about seven thousand dollars in today's money. It's almost like a Concorde. How flying the Concorde used to be. Right. Only the super rich really could afford to do this. And so it was the world's rich and famous who could afford to do this, including in the 1936 season. This included the German heavyweight boxer Max Schmeling, who returned home after knocking out American Joe Lewis in New York in June of 1936. He took the Hindenburg back home to Germany. Well, he got Joe Lewis that time, but there was a return bout, I believe. He got the upper hand. Yes, in the end, he would get the upper hand. So after one successful season of the Hindenburg in 1936, it's, it prepares for its second season in service. Yes, and it kicked off the 1937 season with a flight to Brazil and then prepared for its first flight from Frankfurt to the U.S., uh, which would depart on May 3rd, 1937. For that flight, the Hindenburg had 61 crew members and 36 passengers, and American Airlines was working with the Hindenburg to transport those arriving passengers onward from Lakehurst. They would shuttle them off to Newark, and they could continue on home on those d- smaller domestic flights. <laughs> Meanwhile, there were passengers fully booked on the Hindenburg to then return back to Germany, many of whom, because remember this is a VIP crowd, would continue on to London to attend the coronation of King George. And so the Hindenburg, on its first trip to the U.S., departed Frankfurt on May 3rd, 1937. Two days later, the New York Times reported on May 5th, 1937, Airship due tomorrow. The Hindenburg, making 64 knots to reach Lakehurst at dawn. At 23 hours Greenwich Mean Time last night, Captain Max Proust reported the position of the airship Hindenburg about 400 miles north of the Azores on its way toward Lakehurst, New Jersey on the first of its 18 trips of the season. The speed of the airship was given at 64 knots and should bring it over New York at dawn tomorrow. But that is sadly not how events played out. We'll get to the rest of the story of the Hindenburg after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. On the afternoon of May 6, 1937, 
New Yorkers saw something remarkable over the city. Not rare, necessarily. They had seen other dirigibles of different kinds. But this was certainly more wondrous. It was the Hindenburg, with its rudders emblazed with Nazi swastikas, riding over the city at a low enough altitude that some people could actually see those insignias very clearly. Here's a few statements from the New York Times the following day. Quote, Thousands of persons craned their necks in Times Square yesterday afternoon as the Hindenburg, a familiar sight to this area, soared above the tall buildings in a brilliant sun. Traffic was impeded in some sections of the city as throngs choked thoroughfares and chauffeurs stopped their automobiles, left the steering wheel and gazed skyward as the ship, its motors roaring and swastikas gleaming, passed over the city. Okay, so that's the afternoon of May 6th. Mm -hmm. But uh, before the break, I was reading the Times piece, which reported that the Hindenburg would be arriving over New York at dawn. Right. It was late. It was almost half a day late. On May 6th, Thursday, it arrived over the skies of Portland, Maine in the morning and then headed down the eastern seaboard down to Boston, so that by the afternoon, by about 3 p.m., 3.15, it was over the New York City metropolitan area, headed, of course, for Lakehurst. It should have landed that morning, but due to winds, it was making a belated late afternoon flight over the city. Some things never change. (laughs) It even swung over Brooklyn, long enough for fans over at Ebbets Field, who were watching a game between the Brooklyn Dodgers and the Pittsburgh Pirates, while most of the people in the stand turned to take a look at this incredible sight in the sky. The Brooklyn Eagle reported the following day, quote, When she dove into view high above the Borough Hall section, those who were sunning themselves in the new Brooklyn Bridge Plaza Mm. gazed aloft. There was a mounted cop on the plaza who, from horseback, tried to point out the great dirigible to an old lady. She caught a glimpse of it and exclaimed, How wonderful! Well, the Hindenburg... I love that old-timey reporting. You know, they just (laughs) don't write those details anymore. Well, the Hindenburg went back over Mm -hmm. the tip of Lower Manhattan, which created some mayhem in the tight city streets around the Woolworth Building and Wall Street. As people just raced into the streets to look up at it? And they weren't just staring at the airship. The airship was surrounded by little airplanes also. I mean, it was quite a sight as these airplanes were escorting it, you know, through the airspace and towards Lakehurst. In the harbor, there were steamships and tugboats and vessels of all different shapes and sizes that were tooting their horns and whistles as the Hindenburg drifted past them over Staten Island and into the horizon. The Hindenburg arrived at Lakehurst at 4 p.m., but there were afternoon thunderstorms in that area of New Jersey, so it was not safe to land. So to avoid the storms, the Hindenburg drifted off to wait it out a little bit over the afternoon sunbathers along the Jersey Shore and nearby Asbury Park. Now, while all of this is going on, a 31-year-old reporter named Herbert Morrison, who had been hired by radio station WLS in Chicago, well, he was headed over towards Lakehurst with his engineer, Charles Nelson. 
a radio announcer? Had they had they decided to broadcast this event live? Well, they were going to record it for a later date to be used in a newsreel because this was a newsworthy event. Uh-huh. But there wasn't uh, a... The first landing of the season. Right. So they're setting up their equipment here at Lakehurst. Mm-hmm. When just after 6 o'clock at 6.12, the commanding officer at Lakehurst, Charles Rosendahl, sent a message to the Hindenburg that conditions were now good for landing. Now, remember, they had a lot of pressure um, because they had a full passenger list waiting at Lakehurst to board the Hindenburg and head back over. So at this point, because they were 12 hours late, they had accepted the fact that the departure couldn't really happen anytime before midnight, which was pretty late, you know, but they'd, they'd have to clean the Hindenburg. They'd have to prepare it mm-hmm. uh, for its return voyage. So at 6.22, the Hindenburg receives a second message that landing is recommended now, but still making its way back. At 7.08, they receive a third message, land as soon as possible. So for about 16 minutes from 7.09 to 7.25, the Hindenburg, now at Lakehurst, turned and pivoted its its way around the landing field as the wind shifted and it tried to get in the right position. At 7.25, it prepared for its final landing, a, a high landing, where hovering 125 feet in the air, the Hindenburg dropped its landing cables to the ground in order to be pulled uh, safely to landing from the next day's New York Times. It was exactly 7.20 p.m., according to official timing by company and naval authorities, when it dropped two lines to the ground crew. Observers here said that the wind shifted just before the Hindenburg attempted to land, and that this made it difficult for the ground crew to maneuver her. A company representative said that normally the ship would have been expected to be perfectly safe at the moment she dropped her lines. Lined up on the field below the silvery cone-shaped airship, the ground crew grasped the lines and began to walk it the 100 yards to the mooring mast. Well, here it comes, ladies and gentlemen. We're out now, outside of the hangar, and what a great sight it is. A thrilling one. It's a marvelous sight. It's coming down out of the sky, pointed directly towards us and toward the mooring mast. It's practically standing still now. They've dropped ropes out of the nose of the ship, and uh, it's been taken a hold of down on the field by a number of men. It's starting to rain again. The rain had uh, slacked up a little bit. The back motors of the ship are just holding it... uh, just enough to keep it from... It burst into flames. Get it, Charlie. Get it, Charlie. It's right and it's crashing. It's crashing terrible. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's burning, bursting into flames and, and it's falling on the morning bath and all the folks between that this is terrible. This is one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's... It's, it's, it's flaming. Oh, four or five hundred feet into the sky. It, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now. And the frame is crashing to the ground. Not quite to the mooring mass. All the humanity and all the fans are just feeding around it. I don't do it. I can't even talk to people. His friends are out there. It's a... It, it's a oh. I, I can't talk, ladies and gentlemen. Honest, it's just like they're massive smoking wreckage. The Hindenburg crashed, its backside, the stern, crashing into the ground in flames as the top of the ship angled up and flames shot out the top. 
passengers and crew members had seconds to consider what to do. With windows open, they jumped, some from 20 feet and more in the air, and tried to run for their lives. The whole crash, from the first signs of fire to the top crashing down to the ground, took about 34 seconds. People screamed on the ground and ran from the explosion. But others, including ground crew members, service personnel, even escaping passengers, rushed back into the flaming wreckage, attempting to rescue anyone they could find. Meanwhile, ambulances raced to the scene from nearby hospitals, only to find roadways blocked by curiosity seekers who had been following the Hindenburg toward Lakehurst, and others who tried to race to the scene when they saw the smoke in the sky. Herb Morrison's newsreel voiceover was immediately flown to New York and broadcast on a live national radio program on NBC. There had been 97 people aboard the Hindenburg, 61 crew members and 36 passengers. Of those, 22 crew members and 13 passengers died, along with one ground crew member, for a total of 36 people. But amazingly, 62 of the 97 people aboard the Hindenburg survived. Given the drama and the severity of this crash, it's a wonder that so many survived. Watching the footage of this even today is absolutely terrifying. Yeah, well, it's terrifying just to even hear Morrison's play-by-play of of the events. And, you know, the coverage in the newspaper is terrifying to read. And, of course, the next day's papers in New York and around the country were dominated by this story. Included, of course, in the story were possible explanations of what could have led to this disaster. Well, for instance, one of the people who was not on the Hindenburg was Dr. Hugo Eckener. For many political reasons, which we won't get into, he was a critic of Hitler, and and because he was an older man at this time, he was removed as the head of the Zeppelin Company. But of course, everyone wanted to know his opinion the following day, and he had at first, suspected that it had to have been sabotage. Right. Sabotage uh, was one of the dominant theories. Of course, this was a highly fraught moment in history, and the Hindenburg symbolized for many the Nazi rise to power. So, yes, there were many critics of Adolf Hitler, of the Nazi party, who would have loved to have seen this giant airship go down in its first voyage to the States in 1937. And in fact, there was a passenger uh, named Joseph Spa who traveled with his dog because he was a German-born, at this point, U.S. resident Mm -hmm. um, who had been in Europe performing as an acclaimed acrobat. And he was aboard coming back to the States, uh, traveling with his dog, and his dog was allowed down below, sort of in the steerage area, and he was allowed to visit his dog, but that gave him access not just to his dog, but also to those hydrogen gas balloons. So the theory held that perhaps Joseph Spa somehow sabotaged, set off a bomb, somehow lit something, and was himself capable of bringing it down and jumping to safety because he was a trained acrobat. Joseph lived in Queens, and so many local newspapers uh, covered his story in the following days. He was able to use a bit of his acrobatics in getting out of the burning Hindenburg. And his story got a lot of coverage in the local newspapers because he lived in Queens. And so his Mm. story was told several days later. And it was sensational. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, an acrobat, like, twirling himself out of the Hindenburg to, to, to escape. But this theory did not hold because he was in the wrong area of this airship. And Right. The dog was in the front, uh, but the fire started in the back. So it seemed very unlikely that he'd be able to get to the back and then all the way back up in the front because it happened so quickly. It's much more likely that the fire was caused by leaking hydrogen because leaks, hydrogen leaks had been discovered on the Hindenburg before. Um, so there were several theories around hydrogen. One had it that the hydrogen was somehow ignited by some sort of atmospheric static spark because it had been so stormy. Some even suggesting that perhaps lightning played a part. Others thought maybe a gas bag had been torn open by one of the support cables when the Hindenburg was turning and pivoting um, and trying to get into the perfect landing position. Another held that perhaps there was something in the cotton sheath that was covering the Hindenburg because the sheath contained cellulose nitrate, which is highly flammable. So perhaps it had picked up a static charge that somehow ignited the hydrogen I mean, there's a lot of flammable items contained in this airship, so it could have been any number of those reasons. There was, however, an investigation that was called immediately, um, a joint U.S.-German investigation of the cause. They came to a conclusion, and for decades, scientists and investigators have been trying to recreate the scene, and they ultimately, rather recently, came to the same conclusion that the initial investigators came to as well. I am not an expert in this field, so I'm going to read this mm -hmm. description from the excellent website airships.net. The spark was most likely caused by a difference in electric potential between the airship and the surrounding air. The airship was approximately 60 meters, or about 200 feet, above the airfield in an electrically charged atmosphere. But the ship's metal framework was grounded by its landing line. The difference in electric potential likely caused a spark to jump from the ship's fabric covering, which had the ability to hold a charge, to the ship's framework, which was grounded through the landing line. So there was some kind of a spark between that metal framework and the sheath that when combined with leaking hydrogen caused the catastrophic fire. This was more than just a disaster of a particular vessel, but it really spelled the end of the entire lighter-than-air commercial business. As a form of transportation for passengers, it was pretty much eliminated by World War II. Although the U.S. Navy did operate some airships that patrolled the Pacific Ocean during the war, but ironically, it was World War II and the advances in the aviation industry that gave us the modern passenger jet service. And when compared to the old futuristic world of airships, is far more effective at transporting masses Certainly. of people mm -hmm. uh, long distances. But there is another vestige of the airship that we still kind of have today. For a manufacturer of those airships for the U.S. Navy was Goodyear. Uh -huh. the Goodyear is a name that's pretty much synonymous with airships. Or tires. And tires. They actually came along around the same time as the airship with the Goodyear company. Today, of course, you'll see one very notable airship still overhead. The Goodyear Blimp, which on occasion floats over the skies of Yankee Stadium. But that blimp, Greg, 
has nothing on the Hindenburg. For still today, the Hindenburg holds the record of the largest aircraft to ever have flown. For more on the Hindenburg, visit our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where Greg will be putting together a post with fabulous photos and futuristic images of the city that never was. I'd also like to recommend checking out the website of the Zeppelin Museum in Friedrichshafen, Germany. You can check out their site at zeppelin-museum.de. In addition, the airstrip made famous by these airships, today called Lakehurst Maxwell Field, is it's still an operating military base. And as we are approaching the 80th anniversary of the destruction of the Hindenburg, they will be doing a lot of special events. I mean, they're, they're regularly running tours. The tours are operated by the Navy Lakehurst Historical Society. So you can go to www.nlhs.com. A special thank you to all of our listeners who have joined us on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys with your support. It's because of your support that we're able to put out a new episode of the Bowery Boys every two weeks. Thank you so much, and be sure to stand by for a new Bowery Boys patron-only special coming to your podcast feed in the coming days. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. 